Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Cal Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University. In addition to researching cutting-edge technology, he also writes about the impact of these innovations on our culture. Cal is a New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including A World Without Email, Digital Minimalism, and Deep Work. Cal's work has been published in over 35 languages and published in the publications including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, New Yorker, Washington Post, and Economist. He regularly writes articles on these topics through a variety of outlets and has a long-running blog called Study Hacks. He also discusses these topics in detail on his top-ranked Deep Questions podcast. Cal is a sharp guy who's very um, pragmatic but a, a very intentional thinker. Uh, has clearly given a lot of uh, thought to his career and where he spends his time, how he spends it, and, and who he spends it with uh, to, to achieve what he wants but also make time for what's important. I think you'll get a lot out of this episode and uh, really learn from someone who has seen it from all sides. Cal, welcome to the One Away Show. Well, thanks for having me on. I mean, we just discovered we're actually physically quite proximate right now. So I feel like we're just one vaccine away from (laughs) being able to do this uh, in person. So there's something hopeful to get started on. Absolutely. You know, post-pandemic world, you know, maybe we can uh, do our deep work together. Uh, You might not like that. Um, No, I'm I'm kidding, Cal. No, it's good to meet you. It's great to see that you're close by and local to me in DC. Super excited for this, you know, knowing your work for some time now uh, and, and being, you know, just reading deep work and, you know, having that have an impact on how I go about my habits, but I, I want to go a little deeper here today. And I know you have a new book that you're out, so we'll promote that, but what's your one away moment that you want to share with us today? I think something that comes to mind a lot, I actually ended up writing a book about this 10 years ago was uh, coming across a book and the book was Steve Martin's professional memoir, Born Standing Up. And I came across this relatively early, relatively early in my training as an academic. So I was a computer science graduate student at MIT at the time. And the thing that caught my attention and changed the way I thought about a lot of things is that he has, uh, he talks in the book and I'm, I'm, I'm conflating this slightly with an interview he did about the book. So I'm, I'm, the, the quote actually comes from an interview about the book, but the sentiment was in the book. And um, so I'm mixing these two things together with the same idea. So, so Martin was talking about uh, this book, which was all about how did he get successful as a stand-up comedian? And his whole point for this book was he said he was tired of reading these professional biographies where like you hear about the performer's childhood and next thing you know, they're performing at the Copa. And he's like, well, what about all in between, right? <laughs> like, how did you actually forget once you're famous, how did you actually get there? And when he was talking about his summary of this book, I think it's apt, he was saying in this interview that I was listening to, um, people always ask me, how do you succeed in entertainment? And they're always expecting I'm going to have some answer about, you know, here's how you get an agent or here's how you get your big break. But he said, but what I always tell them, and they're often disappointed by this is 
be so good they can't ignore you. If you do that, other good things, all the other good things will come. And that hit me really strong. And that's kind of the whole point of this, of, of his book was about this many year long, very focused effort he made to try to hone a new style of comedy. Mm. And he just worked at it, worked at it, worked at it. And he talked in the book about diligence. And he said, look, I, I define diligence. It's not just about what you do repeatedly. It's about saying no to everything else so that you can keep doing that one thing diligently. Those ideas were really influential for me. As I said, I wrote a book about it called So Good They Can't Ignore You. I mean, I literally titled the book, you know, after that phrase, but it was a sea change for me because I, I had had a background. I'd been an entrepreneur. I'd been a precocious young guy. You know, I was a college kid with a book contract, that type of stuff. And I'd been in a mindset as I moved into grad school of you can optimize, right? You can figure out the angle, figure out the trick. Like most people are just they're not thinking creatively. And so you, you, you get the right idea, you have the right energy, you get the right marketing, and you can make all this interesting stuff happen. And Martin just turned it all around for me. It's like, no, 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 you got to figure out what's important to you, what's going to matter and commit to it for a long period of time. Stick to that, say no to everything else. Over time, lots of good things will happen. And it calmed down a lot of my work on writing, it calmed down a lot of my academic work, I got more skill and craft focus. And that's been the at the core, you know, of the way I've lived my life ever since. Mm, so interesting. Uh, you seems like just with where you were, you you found some accomplishments and, and achievements early. And that was really exciting to you. But you know, when you when that happens, it's easy to kind of spray focus everywhere because a lot of things are exciting. And you're not thinking about how things compound over time with a lot of intentional effort. So with Steve's book, and you read that, uh, it seems like it really made you reflect on your own life and say, okay, how can I do things a little bit differently? And know, you know, the process will take care of itself is kind of what I'm hearing you say. So once you yeah. read that, go ahead, Cal. No, no, I was just agreeing with you. Okay. Uh, so once you read that book by Steve, and by the way, my mom loves Steve Martin. Who sent me, you know, I've read some of his stuff. Definitely an inspirational kind of guy. Um, once you read that book, you know, what were the changes that you started to make? And how did you start to see the differences in your own life? So in my academic work, I, I do theory. So I do math proofs for the most part. I spent a lot less time thinking about how I was presenting my results or even what topics I was looking at, trying to find a really cool project that this, this, the idea would catch people's attention. And I began to spend more time just doing the hard work of learning math, learning people's results, learning hard stuff, thinking hard about trying to expand it. I mean, I got into the grind, like what's the actual grind for math proofs? And most of it is actually trying to understand existing people's work so that you can build on it. And it's just hard. And because I realized, okay, this is what really was going to matter is producing hard results that are important, not marketing, not the idea so much. You actually had to do the work. And then in my writing, I set this goal. I realized, you know, I really want to write because I'd grown up on these type of books, hardcover, sort of front of store idea books. And I couldn't just do that. At the time, I'd been writing sort of paperback original student advice guides. And I laid out, okay, I'm going to Steve Martin this. And I began a training program. I... I am going to improve my writing skills until I can do one of these books and uh, relentlessly focus my efforts towards building towards that type of writing. One of the things I did in this time is the 
the third book I sold was a student advice guide, but I very purposely structured and formatted the book to be in the idea book genre so I could start practicing that. I also began to deconstruct long form articles. I would deconstruct a lot of New Yorker stuff, a lot of New York Magazine stuff. And I would deconstruct and try to understand how do you build one of these four or 5,000 word New Yorker articles? And then I would get a commission for a whatever, it'd be a small web-based magazine or whatever. I just, it just had to be a place that had editing and it was somewhat competitive. And then I'd say, great, I'm now going to practice what I learned here. Let me try a Gladwellian interleaving. Let me try uh, whatever, right? And, and so it was just systematic, relentless process, practice. Uh, because I had that mindset also, it meant when other things came along, like social media, for example, and these other types of things, I was just doing the whole Steve Martin thing. Like diligence is saying no to the things that aren't what you're really trying to do. And so I just never really got into that world, never got really into like an influencer culture, never really got into a, a Twitter follower culture. I was just writing, 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 solving, solving, solving. And just, I just, it really changed that mindset, but it made all the difference because I got better at writing. And I, ironically, my first hardcover idea book was inspired by the Steve Martin advice that got me going down that path in the first place. I used to deconstruct New Yorker articles. Now I write New Yorker articles. I was trying to get more serious about my, my math proofs as a student. I'm now a tenured professor doing math proofs. So it, it was right. I mean, <laughs> you become, do something really well, give it a lot of energy. Like over time, it's hard to predict, but interesting things will happen. Hmm. Super powerful and the power of you know, compound focus and results. Something I want to kind of lean into as well, uh, Cal, is your background in, in writing. Uh, yet you have a very engineering and math type of background as well. You've kind of seems like that right and that left brain you've merged together, even though what you're writing about is creating that systematic focus in, in some regards in, in the work that you've done as of late. Uh, how did, you know, give us a little backstory as well. How did that craft for writing start when maybe you, you initially were more left brain? I don't want to pin you into a, you know, a box, but, you know, you, you were able to develop this muscle that's more of a creative muscle and a systematic process type of thinking is also, a, I would argue, a very creative act as well. Well, you know, as a kid, let's say elementary school, middle school, even coming into high school, I was probably identified and known more for my verbal writing ability than my quantitative ability. I was one of the, the classic stories of a very young reader uh, who read a ton and got all the benefits that that gained for them. The, the, the classes I was being selected into, the uh, seat, well, it's an insider baseball, but but like the CTY program right there used to be this program, I don't know if it still exists, where you take the SATs when you're in middle school, and then if you score really high, you get to go to this sort of camp at Johns Hopkins with other high scores, and you, there's a math camp and a writing camp, because there's a verbal section and a math section. I was invited to the writing camp, not the math camp, right? I mean, I didn't even take BC calculus in high school. Um, so that was actually more my background, because I was a precocious reader, I was in these gifted and talented reading and writing programs as a kid. So that was what I was more comfortable with, but I was also into computers. Yeah. And so I was like a writer kid who wasn't super into math, but was really good at computers. And so I had both of those things going on. It wasn't really until I got to college that I got very serious about sort of mathematics and realized that, that I had some aptitude for, their, for that once I actually tried. But almost right away at college, I was writing. So 
my first year at college, I was rowing crew. And then I got a heart condition and had to stop rowing crew after my freshman year. And I said, well, maybe I'll write. And so almost immediately, I became a columnist for the newspaper. I was a humor columnist. I started writing for the humor magazine, ended up editor in chief of the humor magazine. Uh, so I was doing a lot of writing, a lot of writing in college, sort of concurrently with my computer science education. And so then I sold my first book my right before my senior year of college. So they've always been mm. this concurrent yin or yang. Like both of those things have been going on in my life, my entire life. So, so interesting to me and me, how you kind of let both passions and both interests and talents kind of blossom and flourish how they were supposed to. And, and I want to get back to what you were saying about that book and that intentional effort. But before I do that, you know, a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast they probably want to be the cows of the world or the entrepreneurs of the world or the, you know, be in control of their own destiny type of people. Uh, but they're still a little earlier. They were probably like you when they first got to college. When you, when you were younger, did you know or have an idea of what you wanted to be and like where you wanted to belong in this world? Or was it through maybe getting a set of experiences that kind of led you to getting on the path that you're on today. I'm just curious that process for you and where that started and maybe what you had in mind for yourself then versus where you are right now. Well, I, I should preface this by saying that that 2012 book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, one of the core ideas was actually pushing back on the notion that most people are wired with a pre-existing passion. Uh, in fact, kind of, this was what the, the shocking premise of that book was follow your passion is bad advice. I really got into trying to study. So I'm, I'm, in other words, what I'm trying to tell you, I'm going to answer this question. Yes, from my experience, but also from uh, my book, because <laughs> I've thought some about this. Um, this advice to follow your passion, I feel like has led a lot of people astray, because when you really study people who end up really passionate about their work, it's a more complicated path. So the notion that just I knew in advance, this is what I should do. And that's what gave me all the motivation to do the work oversimplifies that it. it only applies to, you know, I'm making this number up, but 5% of people or something, right? And so for most people, passion is cultivated and the path is harder to predict, right? Uh, that certainly matches that certainly matches my experience. The, the main thing I felt when I was young was impatience, mm. right? I didn't quite know what it was. And I had ideas, my ideas for what I wanted to do were, were um, not good. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you're 18 or 19, what experience you have, you don't really know the possibilities, you're not taking advantage of opportunities that have arisen. So I would have these ideas like, uh, you know, my, we have a family connection to Anderson Cooper, who was just coming up at the time. And I was like, well, maybe what I really need to do is be in cable news. Mm -hmm. uh, then I had a friend who, a college friend, a little beyond me, he started a production company, he's doing movies, like, I need to be in the movie industry. And because I was a, a humor magazine writer at an Ivy League school. Of course, there was like lots of people coming out of this pipeline into professional comedy writing for the, the New York shows, et cetera. I was like, well, maybe I need to be like Mindy Cowling was like uh, a year ahead of me. Um, like, and I remember talking to her like right after she was in New York and making her breaks, like maybe I need to be in comedy writing. Like just, there's just random ideas. But the main thing I felt was this impatience. And that's what I really remember is in high school and especially in college, this impatience to want to just do something big and important. And I remember the frustration very vividly because I couldn't yet do something really big and important. And I could do some things. I'd had a business as a high school student. So it was interesting, but it wasn't a huge business. I wrote my first book in college, which is good, but it wasn't like a huge book, right? Uh, so I was, 
I was hungry yeah. to make a mark, but also just my, my sights were all over the place. And I think this Martin style settling down of here's my two things. And at some point I just sort of realized writing computer science, let's put the head down, you know, yeah. like let's, let's do our sets, uh, the 3am set at the comedy store type thing that made a big difference, but I don't know if you, this is familiar to you, but I just, that impatience, I remember to the point where like, so I was at Dartmouth, which is like a real fratty place. Right. Um, and I'm not a real frat guy. And I pledged a frat. And that first day I was down there, I left and quit. We're in the basement and they're like, you know, Hey pukes, you're going to, you know, the hazing, whatever, whatever. And honestly, one of the main reasons I quit is I, I was thinking, this is nonsense. It's going to take a lot of time. And I have things to do. This can take a lot of time. Like I, if I have to, I'm not a big drinker. So if I have to do this, like, you know, it was a gross, that was a, it was a gross school. You would, you would drink um, food coloring so that you could have rainbow colored vomit. This is what, this is the leaders of the world we're talking about here. I was like, then I'm going to lose a whole day being hung over. I got to do stuff. I got things to do. I'm, I have books. I'm going to start businesses. So I was so impatient. I was like, I can't even be in a frat because I can't lose that time. Mm. Uh, so it was really interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting you bring it up. I hadn't thought about it in a while, but I just, it's so vivid to me, this memory of like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just feel like I have potential and the frustration mm -hmm. of that. So uh, two things. Well, if you like, I'm glad you're close. So we can talk more about this over beer one time. Or actually, you're not a big drinker, me neither. So, but here's, I dropped out of my frat at Georgia. I plagued, I actually quit after I accepted the bid like a week. Me too. I went to the first, did you go there? I went to the first day as a new uh, pledge. I went to the first yeah, I day. Guess, yes, in the basement. Yes, I remember yeah. that. It was rushed. It was the big parade on, on the Georgia street. I remember I got the worst feeling in my stomach. I was like, am I got this wrong? And like you, very impatient, big aspiration. Uh, and I didn't think this was the best path and use of time. And I don't know maybe like you, maybe not like you, I got this, you know, smell the roses a lot in college, but I didn't think that college was really the time to smell the roses because it was just four years of, you, know, you could dick around to be miserable for a few years after and then figure it out or start figuring it out early, not yeah. ever figure it out. And the loans was the other thing I was paying because I was paying for half of it with personal loans. Oh. And so I was like, man, this is expensive. <laughs> so I, I had this feeling of like, I don't want to waste this. Like I got to make this money back. I remember I'm not, a lot of my friends at Dartmouth had come from like professional families and private schools. And it was like, this is how it works. You're going to go here. Uh, you're going to, you're going to go to Harvard law school. You're going to get the law job. Like they had it all figured out, but I wasn't from that background. And I was like, this is expensive. Um, and I wasn't going to become a lawyer or a doctor. And I was like, so how am I going to make this back? So I, I, I mean, I was like, literally, I felt a literal pressure of like, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to dick around for four years. Right. Well, the financial pressure is real. No doubt. Um, luckily, Georgia gave me in-state pretty much tuition. That's here nor there. I'll, I can tell you that story another time, but I had to beat down a lot of doors to get it. But um, Cal, I, I, I'm going to come back to that book and that intentional focus. There's one more thing I want to ask you though, while we're here and just peel back a few more layers. Myself, like you, I, you're very impatient. And I've been through the therapy and the performance coaching to do a lot of the optimization you believe in. Um, when I look back on why I was like impatient in college, it was for a lot of my upbringing in my childhood and events that happened. You said that you were very impatient as well, felt like you always had things to do. Um, one, like, 
did anything happen to you growing up or the way you were raised or any events or sports teams you didn't make like that drove that insane you know unwavering focus to to get somewhere even though you didn't know where like like what what drew what caused that i realize some of it's in it but i also think there's a lot of nurture involved so i'm curious if you've ever reflected on that as well yeah it's a good question um yeah it's a good i'm 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 literally reflecting here as i'm as i'm thinking about thinking about that question i i don't remember an event that was sort of chip on the shoulder style motivation, right? The sort of, uh, I'll show you, I didn't have anything like that. Um, there wasn't like a parental pressure thing. In fact, the way I think about my childhood is I, I had three siblings, there's a lot going on. Um, I had a ton of autonomy. That's the main thing I think about in my childhood is I had a ton of autonomy. I was basically, um, I, I wasn't a problem. I was, so it was like, okay, great. We're glad we don't have to worry about you. So I just, it wasn't like people are looking over my shoulder at my grades or what classes I was taking. Uh, I just had a lot of autonomy. I, I ran this business in high school and the high school kind of just let me leave in the middle of the day and, you know, go to business meetings. And I was taking computer science courses at Princeton uh, because our high school was near Princeton and they had an agreement, you know, if you ran out of courses to take, you could. Um, so I had a lot of autonomy and that, that probably helped. My impatience got really much bigger once I got to college, so I don't know what swapped there. And then beyond that, I think, uh, you know, I was a bright kid. I think I was, I was just, I felt, um, I was bright. You know, I just felt like I kind of bored a little bit by things, and um, I, I was seeing the world and seeing things and understanding people. And it just, I don't know, my brain was picking up on lots of opportunities. Mm. I, I guess I would put it that way. And that all came together in college. Like I was a relatively lazy student until college. And then it all just kind of came together. And I was like, okay, let's go. You know, like, okay, I'm old enough now. I'm like, let's go. It's time to, it's time to make a mark. And so I don't know, there's not any clear thing that pushed yeah. it. Yeah. But I liked it. Totally. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense to, you always hear about the events that maybe drive people, but not, you know, what I love about everything you just said was it's like, I'm not just lazy and bright, but I'm bright and I might've been a little lazy academically, but I was always pushing for more. And like, I finally got to a place where like, I really wanted to like take what I was born with and really like put it somewhere all together. And like, then you've gotten done that. And that's, yeah, and I'm that's so neat to me. And I, you know, the other thing that's coming to mind now is I was fortunate enough that I started as a big fish in a small pond and then later that swapped. And I think if it had been the opposite first, that also might've changed things. Right. So I was at a relatively small, uh, a public school where, you know, maybe we send a handful of kids to Ivy league school. So I was sort of like a big fish in that small pond. I went to Dartmouth. It was probably not the right school to go for computer science, but this is what happens when you let 18 year olds choose where they go to school. They choose them randomly and they're dumb about it. Um, so I was a big fish in a small pond there in computer science. I was just, it's not a computer science powerhouse. So I was sort of just a step above all the other students. And I think that probably gave me a lot of confidence. Now, when I went to MIT, um, all of that just swapped. Then you're just the smallest fish in the ocean, right? And I think if I had started that way, like if I had been at a powerhouse private school, for example, like, oh, there's lots of like really smart, high achieving kids here. Or if I had gone to MIT for undergrad, I was like, oh, I mean, these people are moving things with their brain across the table, you know, uh, that might have been different. So I luckily, I think it's also significant 
I started as a small fish in a big pond, which got me incredibly confident and uh, motivated. And that carried me through once I jumped into the ocean and realized that I really wasn't much of anything. So, excuse me, uh, love, love the way you said that. And I, I agree that if you can, the skills though that you, you learn in being successful and the confidence that can be built in that small pond, you know, to stand out, you know, you have more resources, you know, cater toward you, cater towards you. So when you get to a bigger pond, you're more equipped to also stand out in that pond and not just be swallowed. And, you know, I think that's valuable. And I, you know, I went to school in Athens and Georgia and Atlanta. And I think it was a smaller kind of being a college and trying to do more entrepreneurial things at a very traditional school it was also an easier way to like get access to resources and people because they're, you know, it's easier to stand out. I guess I learned that lesson earlier and I like, I really believe in what you're saying is I, I think that's so invaluable uh, just as a young professional early in your career. And you clearly like, care about younger people through the academic work that you've done and books you've written on succeeding at a younger age. So appreciate you sharing that lesson. I, I want to transition back to kind of Steve Martin, that book and the intentional focus, but really appreciate your backstory and love our connection points here. You never know what you're going to find in these interviews. So uh, you read that book by Steve Martin and you start, you said, I'm going to really like double down in my pursuits, my you know, mathematics in a way and my writing, really reverse engineer, optimize, but do it in a systems oriented way around the things that I care about. Uh, what, how did things start to unravel? Let's just maybe take us post-graduation. How did the path unfold when you really picked a lane and picked a lane of focus? Well, okay, so there was two, two lanes. So we, we can take both lanes separately. Um, so with writing, yeah, so I sold and wrote this book as a senior in college. And, and the first book was, it was student advice book and it was written in uh, like short contrarian chapter format because I thought that would be easier and it was. Um, and then I immediately, as soon as I finished that book, I basically I did two books, right? So I, I turned around and sold the, the follow-up book, started writing it while still at Dartmouth and finished it pretty early on uh, the next year in grad school. So I kind of like right off the bat had these two student books, which, which I had, I had this whole idea behind their entrepreneurial, I, because I've been an entrepreneur, my whole thing was I read all these business books. I was like, student advice guys should be written like business books, right? At the time, student advice guys were written to be kind of kooky and fun. And I was like, no, 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 write this thing. No nonsense. Like, here's how you do really well. Here's what road scholars do. Like let's roll. Um, so that was my big idea. Right. And so I, I wrote those two books. They came out. Um, so the, they were out for a while. It's fine, right? I mean, they're out there. They were doing their thing. I started blogging uh, around that time. So I began to kind of work on my craft and and talk to, this was like 2007 by the time I started that, but it was just a way to talk with and communicate with my audience. And so it was some point right around then is when I had the Steve Martin moment. I'd have to look up when that book actually came out, but it, it's somewhere around then before I wrote my third book, that was really the transition where I said, okay, I'm going to take this much more seriously. And, and that's when I began the training. I began writing. There was a magazine, it's no longer around. It's called Flack Magazine. It's an online magazine that had some really sharp editors. And that's, I was working with them to hone my craft. And yeah. uh, that, if I looked at that trajectory, so I sold this third book um, and it was supposed to be on 
high school admission, like college admissions for high school students. And I wrote it like a Malcolm Gladwell book. And we were talking about counter signaling theory and the, 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 the neuropsychology of impressiveness because I was using it as training. It's a crazy book. I love it. Um, so that came out, but I was kind of stuck. I mean, I guess I felt kind of stuck at that point because these books were all in that lane. My skills were improving, but I was writing these paperback originals for students. My blog audience had kind of grown. It was, and, but it wasn't a huge, I just had like a kind of a fandom, but they were all students who were looking for student advice. And I just made the choice at some point, okay, I think I'm ready to move over to hardcover. I, I had this idea of follow your passion being bad advice. It's, it's an idea I'd been working on for a while. And I still have the notes in a notebook when I was really thinking through, can I really do this? How do I do this? I'm known in the student space. I'm pretty high up in the small hierarchy of student writers of people who write for students. I'm like a well-known writer here. I have a big audience. How do I really want to leave this? I could own this space. I could be the top guy in this space. And I was going back and forth, back and forth. And I was like, I know it doesn't seem optimal in the moment, but I need to move out of it. When I need to move and I'm going to move to this thing on career advice. I had a plan that I executed where I switched my content to be 50-50. Student advice, career advice, student advice, career advice, just to start to transition my audience. And I worked on this idea for a while. I had honed my skills at this point. I'd kind of built my audience up. As I did this back and forth with the career advice, it kind of worked. It grew my audience because I was talking to uh, people beyond just students. And I finally put this proposal together. This, this was like right, I was right at the end of grad school um, or right when my postdoc started and it went to a little mini auction, you know, and it was like, oh, uh, there was interest. And it was like, you're gonna get a, like a $200,000 book deal or something, right? Like for the time, like a grad student was like, whoa, this is like way more money than I get, I would normally get. And that was the transition. I was like, okay, you've jumped over now and you're in the space of, of sort of hardcover, hardcover idea books. So that, that, that was the writing lane. So I, I was like, just felt stuck for years because a student book, my third book, which I wrote, you know, years into grad school is the same amount of money I got for my very first book as a student. Like they were just happy. Like you can have this like nominal amount of money to keep writing these books. And I just felt really stuck as I was training. And that's the thing that comes to mind. And then finally it all came together and I built out the audience, built out the new idea, really developed it, pitched it, and it caught. And the publishing industry is like, okay, we're ready for this. Now we're ready for you. You've done your apprenticeship. We think you can handle it now. So neat. And also the, just the, all those micro steps to transition, to test, to iterate, to, you know, student audience career. And there's just a lot of interconnection and the student audience evolves into the career audience. So this is probably in your favor, smart, uh, but, you know, testing, learning, evolving, optimizing. Okay book, you know, next step. Uh, and I think that's such a lesson, let's just say to the students of the world or the young professionals of the world, there's a quote by Will Smith, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to say it really poorly, but it's like people get so caught kind of looking at the wall, but they don't know how to lay the first brick. And, you know, you, to me, just, you got really good at laying the, the bricks, knowing the wall that you wanted to get to, but you just kept putting the bricks down piece by piece by piece. So you could show up and the wall was there and you could take the next steps. Yeah, but it's journey. scary. I, that's the thing sure. that I, I will emphasize though, that it's in the moment it's scary, right? I mean, it was the move out of student stuff was scary. I mean, this is what I would fly around the country and give talks at all these schools. Like I was Mr. Student, uh, student advice. I was doing a lot of stuff on student overload and stress. I had a lot of original ideas. I was on panels. I was you know, going to Harvard, going to Princeton, giving talks. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's always scary. Uh, but you know, I've, and I've done it again, but I keep doing it. And so I think you're onto a real point because it, otherwise I, I think stasis is really hard in a lot of these industries. Then you just end up like the person who does X. And if you're the person who does X long enough, then after a while you're, you're, you know, having infomercials and, and selling like it, 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 it loses its steam, you lose your steam. And so like, that was a hard transition. After that book, I wrote deep work. Um, and at some point, I realized, like, I'm a tenured professor now, I think I need to move like much more into semi academic philosophy of technology, social criticism of technology and culture. And like, I made that jump with my with my book, digital minimalism, that's when I really changed how I Instead of being like, I'm a professor unrelated over here, I write these books. I brought the two worlds together. That was very intentional, right? Mm. Like I'm now going to present myself to the world as a Georgetown professor who studies technology and writes books about the impact attack on society. Like, and that was a big thing. And that was kind of scary. Um, but my last two books have been in that context, you know, of, uh, and that's when I started doing more like some peer reviewed writing on tech and culture. That's when I started writing more for like the New Yorker and the New York times, like really, it's like, I need to evolve into being a public intellectual on these topics and use my education credentials. That's the only way to keep this moving. Yeah. And now I'm probably going to move out of the sort of tech and culture and in particular tech and business. I'm sort of done with that, but it's scary. So like whatever I do next, it's got to be like my next book cannot be about the world of work and tech and optimization. I got to, I know I have to do something new. So I'm laying down more bricks right now. But in just in the moment, it's like, you're not quite sure where you're piling them. You're not quite sure if it's actually going to, what's on the other side is where you're trying to go. Uh, yeah. Um, well said. And with clearly more perspective uh, in, you know, love your intentionality. It's very clear. It's very evident. I think it's the only way to really succeed authentically in this world is to be very intentional uh, and precise in how you do it. And, and so well said. I, I think just to piggyback off what you just said as well is I think she's done this very well to a degree. And I'll give a opposing view if, if okay with it. Is Ryan Holiday, uh, just from a perspective of like book marketing to you know other things, and then kind of the work that he's doing now with more on the stoicism side of things, and then the ode to his boy. I think the the latest, but it seems like it's taken on his writing has taken on more meaning you know, from maybe as it's evolved and with you, you know, you're thinking about, by the way, I don't know, Ryan, I'm just, this is from perspective of just watch outside external observation. And you're like, okay, how do I continue to evolve and make things really meaningful and intentional? And then to your point about the brand side of things or the, you know, it's scary to make the, the leap, but I think you make a really good point. I feel like just the product or you live and die on the product, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you build a brand or a message that like stands for something where the books and what you're doing, they're extensions of that core message. And so that's what's so fascinating about just, you know, building brands and people and all the things it's how to connect all those dots. And it's not easy because it's just, it's a lot of architecture in a way. Um, so anyways, really appreciate your perspective uh, and love kind of having these intentional thoughts. Um, Cal, you know, something I, I want to talk about it too is, you know, you know, you said you're going to evolve from uh, writing, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, evolve from work and culture type of work. Um, but I would love to know, just to dive right into it, you know, you just came out with a new book and 
I would love for you to talk about it, promote it, and like, let's dive into it for a bit, just for our audience, because I think it's a very fascinating topic for the future. Um, tell us about it and, and where kind of things, that, where you envision this book and why you wrote it. I mean, so th this new book, I started right after Deep Work, which came out in 2016. And I actually put this book on hold to write Digital Minimalism, just because I saw this cultural change happening about our relationship to our phones that was very timely. So I was like, okay, digital minimalism needs to be written right now. And I wrote that and it was very timely. It was right as we were shifting to, from exuberance to unease about our phones. And I returned to a world without email, but it really is the natural follow-up to 2016's deep work. So in deep work, I was talking about, hey, focus is important. We shouldn't ignore it. We should do more time with it. The big follow-up question that came out of that book is why is it so hard to focus? I mean, mm -hmm. in the book, in Deep Work, I just stipulated like, yeah, we're on email and Slack and stuff like that. And, and you know, but we, sh we should be wary about doing too much of that because focus is, creates more value than that. But people would come back and say, Cal, I don't think you understand how trapped we are constantly tending these communication channels. And I was like, okay, I want to know the answer here. Why do we work this way? Does it make sense? Is there an alternative? And all three of those questions turned out to have really big answers. That's why it took me five years to finally get this book out. Mm -hmm. uh, the way we worked after tools like email arrived, I call it the hyperactive hive mind workflow, is largely arbitrary. As I document in the book, email spread in the early 1990s because it was replacing fax machines, memos, and voicemails, and it did that very well. But in its wake came this hyperactive hive mind mode of collaboration. We said, well, let's just figure everything out on the fly with back and forth messaging because it's low friction and easy. So let's just back and forth with messaging. I document how no one thought that was a good idea. It was just a natural reaction to once the tool was available. I mean, you can actually document companies that three days after email has been introduced, they're communicating five to six X more, right? Just the presence of the tool changed the way people started working in a very emergent, unplanned way. You get into the neuroscience of this and it's, it's productivity poison, right? Like the, the, the damage of all the context shifting required to keep switching from what you're doing to checking the channels to what you're doing is productivity poison. And, and one of the big ideas in that book is you can't solve this problem in your inbox. You can't say, I'm just going to check my email less or I'm going to have better habits or tips because the underlying issue is the fact that this hyperactive hive mind is how we collaborate. If unscheduled back and forth messages is your way that you collaborate, you have to keep checking because all of those digital ping pong balls are coming back over the net and you have to hit them back. Like if you're, if you're using this way of collaborating, you have to keep checking channels, creates the context shifts, productivity poison. So this is like this really bad situation we're in. Uh, and so then the book basically makes this proposal of, we could fix this, not by inbox habits, but by getting rid of the hyperactive hive mind and say, okay, for this type of work we do, here's how we collaborate. And it doesn't involve unscheduled messages. And for this thing we do repeatedly as a company, here's how we do this. It doesn't involve unscheduled messages. And for this type of thing we do regularly, here's how we do it. And it doesn't require unscheduled messages. And you can completely dissipate the pressure in your inbox by getting rid of these unscheduled back and forths, transforms your inbox back to like a physical inbox. I'll check it once a day to see the files I was expecting were sent. And people get way more productive and way happier. And, and, and so it's this huge kind of epic story. I had to pull apart all these pieces, but the conclusion is this is the way we're going to be working in the future. It's just way more productive and has way less turnover than this hive mind nonsense. It's only about if you're going to get out ahead of that or you're going to be trailing. Mm. And so like the, the book is almost like a future predictor. Here's, here's the problem we're in. It's worse than you thought. It's more arbitrary than you thought. Here's what it would look like to get rid of it. For sure, we're going to get rid of it. The question is just, 
how soon until you do it. Love that. Uh, you know, I love what you said about digital ping pong with an email and getting back and forth to it. Can relate. And, you know, I thought tools like superhuman are, are phenomenal because they, 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 you know, get rid of a lot of clutter. But to your point, you're not careful about how you use the time intentionally. You get sucked into it. Um, the question I have for you is, you know, first, let's just say a startup of a few people, you know, let's just say two or three. And then I'm going to give you a scenario on the flip side. And I would love to hear your answer. How do you build that, have those habits into your culture from the start, right? I think it's a great question if, you know, and then if you're, let's just say Google or a Fortune 500 company, and you want to make some massive shifts internally for one productivity, you know, how, what do you see there? I mean, what, what can you do if you're at the very beginning to be so intentional? And then the company with thousands of employees, how do you kind of reverse the damage that's been done since the inception of the company? And then what does, you know, what does, what does you know, the future of work for those companies look like five years out? That's going to obviously be better than, you know, the companies who are still on email, given your, you know, philosophy and pr proposal for a better world. I mean, I think the right way to think about it is whether you're like a solo entrepreneur or a small company or working for a really large company is you're a factory that has a couple different product lines. Like you're, you're a factory that does produces these things, but instead of being model T's and microwaves, it's, I, uh, this product line is answering client questions. And this product line is writing computer code. And this product line is working on, you know, marketing campaigns, like the things that you do repeatedly. And the whole approach here is to have like a factory owner would have a process engineering mindset. Okay, if these are the things we do. These are the things we produce as knowledge workers in this particular job or company or team. What's the best way to do it? That's the question that unlocked all this productivity in the industrial sector in the 20th century is they started asking the question of, is there a better way or what's the best way to build this? And it started process reengineering as a concept and it, it created massive growth. Hmm. massive growth, right? Because uh, the assembly line was just 100x better than the craft method for building cars and so on, right? Um, we need to bring that mindset, the knowledge work and realize like it, you're not a email answering machine. You're not a general, general purpose computer processor that just gets tasks thrown at you and you just try to churn through them fast. No, you're involved in probably 17 different processes, uh, things you come back to again and again, where you collaborate with other people and it produces some sort of valuable outcome. It's time to write them down and one by one actually asked a question, how do we actually want to implement this process? What rules, what systems, what are the, what is the structure here for this process? With an eye towards minimizing the, the, the thing that's the biggest poison for people's happiness and productivity is unscheduled messaging. A message will come at some point that I have to see and respond to and I don't know when. That, I, I really wanna implant that. So uh, if you're in a really small company, it's like, great, we're process engineering. What are the things we do? How do we want to do them? And just be explicit about it. And maybe some of the things like, yeah, for now, we're spending most of our time on this and there's just two of us. What's hyperactive hive minded? We're on Slack. We just need to be rock and rolling on this, just working on this all day. Let's not overburden it. But let's be clear, that's what we're doing. And over here, oh, we still have to deal with like our, our new clients. Well, oh, there's a process here. Let's put a process in here so that we don't have to do unnecessary back and forth. It's process engineering, process engineering. When you move up to a really large company, the sweet spot is to do this at the team level. 
you can't as a C-suite executive say, okay, I'm going to come up with implementation systems and rules and structures for all the different things that people do in our company. And I will tell us how we're going to do it. That's bureaucracy. And it, it, there's no way you're going to get that agile enough and proper enough. And it'll become bureaucracy, which will make things worse. But at the team level, you can definitely do this. Let's work together to figure out what are our rules for all the different things we do together with an eye towards minimizing unscheduled back and forth messages. That's very agile. Everyone has a stake in it. Everyone's involved in it. You can be flexible and change things when they're not working properly. That's what I think should happen at the big company. So because it's at the team scale, the size of the company doesn't really matter. Mm. But it all comes back to this mindset of I'm a factory. I have a bunch of different product lines. I need to actually think about how am I implementing each of these product lines and is there a better way to do it? And once you have that mindset, you begin the tinkering, you begin the flexi flexible experimentation, you begin the shifts and changes, you see what works, you see what doesn't, but you can get that same 50X growth that the industrial sector saw in the 20th century. You can start to tap into that potential, but in your own brain-based work. Yeah. You said something in there also, I'm so in alignment with you on all this. Um, you said something in there about bringing a process work to the knowledge like economy, the knowledge working individual, as opposed to the craft work and assembly line. And I think you're right. I think the best businesses, they, they, they're very clear on process on how, and, and obviously iterate, adapt, agile, but it's, it's that systems thinking over time and i can see how that book you know back when you were much you know younger uh with steve martin like it really kind of set the tone for you around process and around how that goes in and uh so i i just i applaud you for the way you think about your effort and i applaud you for um just the way in which you go about your life. And I am sure if I had to guess, you're like that with everything you do um, to a degree, maybe there's some variability in there, but it, it creates a level of predictive predictability that I think is worthwhile uh, for your life. So um, really appreciate you sharing. Um, Cal, with just a limited amount of time left, you know, we have one more question and then I wanna let people know where, you know, they can find you and the book since, you're uh, not super active on social. So um, where, you know, when you, when you think at the end of the day, like when, it, when it's all set and done, I'm sure you've been asked this before with all the interviews you've done, you know, what's it all mean? Like what's the legacy behind your work? The, you know, the, the life that you led. I mean, in my, in my professional life, I, I, I want to do things that are original and, and of impact. You know, you, you, you take whatever, gifts you happen to have, you hone them, right? You, you, you sharpen them, you build them and try to do things that might, might actually move the needle on something or might actually make a difference, you know? And, and that's what I'm really fired up about doing is like producing good things that are at the peak of my current skills and have an impact when they get out there. And everything else is sort of just noise, professionally speaking, around that. It's why I'm very suspicious of almost anything else in the world of business. It's why I've never had a social media account. It's why I don't spend much time on the internet. It's why I only work, you know, nine to five and the rest of the times with my family. It's, I just, that's what I want to do. Uh, relentlessly go after a small number of lanes that I think are valuable, but be flexible and experimental, experimenting within those lanes, right? So if I'm writing, 
what I'm writing, you know, we talked about this, it could really matter. I have to evolve. You have to keep moving. Uh, use good systems and process thinking to keep the noise at a minimum so that you can just keep relentlessly going after things you think are important and just doing that Steve Martin thing. Try to be so good they can't ignore you. And then once you think you got there, just raise your definition of good and repeat. Plan, do, review, get better over time. And, uh, you know, I think everything you just said makes so much sense. Uh, Cal, what an uh, inspiring interview today. Where, where can people get in touch with you and buy your new book or all the books that you've written over your career? Well, you can find my books, uh, you know, wherever books are sold. I have a website, calnewport.com. That's where I've been writing those weekly essays since 2007. So you can sort of dive in there. I also have a podcast, Deep Questions, where I just take questions from my readers about all these types of issues from the nitty gritty of, of, you know, like email management to big picture questions about the deep life. Uh, and we just rock and roll a couple times a week on questions as well. So you can hear from me there. I'm otherwise kind of hard to find a reach. I'm not on any social media. I don't have a general purpose email address. I just try to focus on the things I, I think are worth doing, give it some good attention. And then when I'm done, you know, shut down, log out. The man of simplicity and uh, love it, Cal. Uh, thanks again for your time and uh, best luck with the new book and everything hereafter. I love it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to soon get together and, and recreate our lost frat pledge period together we'll, we'll we'll recreate that lost memory together you you bring the the boot garbage can and uh i'll bring <laughs> i'll bring the whatever whatever the paddle we'll, great we'll we, <laughs> yeah we'll, i'm sure we can bond more there thank you so yeah. much and uh can't wait to see you in the flesh all right thanks if you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.